I was thinking how weird church would be, or maybe it is to you, but it would definitely be to someone who's like an alien or someone who's not, hasn't been to church before. I mean, being an outsider looking in, we're a group of people who get together at least once a week to worship a God we believe became human and died and then rose from the grave. We put water on little babies and people and dunk older people in the water in a tank that we have in our building. That's kind of weird. Um, we eat little pieces of bread dipped in wine and we talk about it being the body and blood of Christ but not really but sort of and somehow we mysteriously meet with this risen Jesus and we listen to a monologue <laughs> delivered by some guy you know or woman or you know it's, it's kind of weird like you chose to be here I don't know why um, and, and there's another thing that we do that you don't do in many settings as, as often as maybe you did in, in years previous and that is we sing we sing like multiple songs every Sunday together uh, I, I don't have, besides the shower or sometimes in the car when we're doing dance party or whatever with the kids, like, don't do a lot of singing anywhere else unless you're in a choir or something like that. And all of this might seem kind of odd, but if you think about it from the perspective of learning or passing a faith down through the generations, it makes a lot of sense. Because in one worship gathering, we're exposed to several, several different styles uh, of learning and teaching uh, and exposed to many different opportunities to express our faith in action. And this evening, I want to focus in specifically on the songs that we sing. Songs can be such powerful mediums of expression, of devotion, and learning all at the same time. Songs teach us, for good or for ill, depending on the song. They transfer information, right? And they also form impressions about the world. They evoke emotion and memory. They inform the head and they can move the heart. They can be powerful in shaping our internal lenses through which we judge what is real and what's important and what's true. All songs have the potential to do that. But during this Advent season, I want to take the next few weeks and explore some of the different songs that we sing in church together. What do they teach us about Jesus? Where do these ideas come from that form the root of these songs? And are they accurate descriptions of what Scripture teaches us? Mostly, I hope to get at the root message of the songs over the next few weeks so that as we sing them together, they might have a little more meaning for us. Would you, uh, would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that for all that you've already done in our midst. You've gathered us, you've reminded us of your life, of your very breath in us, you've given us expression, opportunity to pray and to long. You've given us an opportunity to give and to receive um, a young life into our church through the sacrament of baptism. And now as we come to the songs that we sing, the praises that we offer, the things that we learn, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would be more alive and real in our lives. Amen. Our song for today is one of my favorites. I know it's a favorite for many of you. It's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, a song that we uh, sang earlier on in the service. It's an old song, and as far as we know, it originated, at least in its root uh, words like the lyrics originated in the ninth century AD. The Roman church originally sang or maybe more accurately chanted the, those words uh, one verse each evening service 
starting on the 17th of December and then each day till the 23rd of December. And because each verse starts with the word O, O come Emmanuel, O come O root of David, these kind of things, they were called the O antiphons. Antiphons is a fancy word for like psalm or you know, lyric or, or anthem. As beautiful as the music is to sing and hear, I find that the song's depth of meaning, its, its poetic, poetic craft, and its theological reflection to be of stunning artistic quality. Each verse, if you notice, picks up on various Old Testament themes for God, and then it applies those names, those themes, onto Jesus. These whispers from the past find their resounding voice in the present because of their fulfillment in Christ. We'll take each verse in turn, exploring the lyrics with an emphasis on their scriptural reference. Because you know me, if it's not the Bible, I shouldn't be preaching. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm only going to cover six of these verses. You'll get the point. And we're going to start naturally with the first one. So Joe's going to put it up so you can kind of follow along. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the first line of each of these verses draws upon a different name attributed to Jesus. In this case, we're encouraged to ponder the name Emmanuel. In Hebrew, this name means the with us God or God with us. And the root text for Emmanuel is Isaiah chapter 7. The setting for that passage is Palestine during the 8th century BC. That's a long time ago. During that time, Israel was split into factions. In the south, Ahaz was king of Judah. And the territory of Judah was the, the territory that included Jerusalem and the temple and all of those kind of areas of, of God. During this time, the northern tribes of Israel joined with foreign forces and they were threatening Ahaz, they were threatening war on Judah. They were superior in every military way and in size. But as the story goes, Yahweh comes to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah and Yahweh offers Ahaz protection and certain victory if he will just trust in God. Ahaz is reluctant to trust God for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to get into now. But the point is that God offers him a sign. He says, I can see you're having trouble trusting me. I'm going to give you a sign. Here it is. A maiden will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, the with us God. Now, what's fascinating about this song, as you look at it on the screen, uh, is that it speaks of Israel being ransomed. That's another way of saying being rescued. Rescued from what? lonely exile here. Now the genius of the song, I think, is that in the time that Isaiah 7 was taking place, the people weren't in exile yet. It's actually because Ahaz would end up rejecting God's offer that they would be conquered by the Assyrians first and then dragged off into exile in Babylon later. By the time we read about Emmanuel in Matthew chapter 1, like Ben read earlier in the service, Israel is far from Babylon. But she's still in a sort of exile, a house arrest, if you will, under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. The reason that this song still resonates with us today isn't because we're in the time of Ahaz, obviously, 8th century BC. It's not because we're in exile in Babylon or because we're under the Roman Empire. 
It's because deep down, I think each of us knows, we are in a sort of lonely exile of our own. Our own fear, our own sin, our own rebellion. We know the places, don't we, where we continue to reject God's offer of, I could help you with that if you want to hand it over to me, and we don't time and time again. We reject God's offer of rescue because we prefer pragmatism, a materialism, self-sufficiency, the isms and ishensies go on. You just fill in your own. In this darkness and exile of our own making, Jesus is born, whether we want him to be or not. And Joseph and Mary are going to call him Emmanuel, the with us God. And so we sing until the Son of God appears again, O come, Emmanuel, O come, rescuing God, O come, Jesus, the God who is with us. The second verse makes reference to the great Lord of might. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, and ancient tribes once gave the law in cloud, in majesty, and awe. There are two Old Testament references. Well, there's more, but I'm just focusing on the major ones. There are two Old, Tef- Old Testament references here. The first is which... Uh, comes from Exodus and the story of how God delivered his people from slavery and raised up Moses who gave them the law on top of Mount Sinai. It was there on the mountain covered with the cloud of God's holy presence that Moses received the Ten Commandments, some of the finest ethical teaching in world history and the backbone of God's covenant with Israel. It was really there on Sinai that God took this band of freed Hebrew slaves and gave them status as the nation of Israel. Gave them status as the people of God, as his holy ones who would be his agents in the world. The Ten Commandments were truly a, a relational ethic designed to help humans relate rightly with one another and rightly with God. So that's one of the references to this verse. The other reference of Lord of might or mighty ruler is found in Micah chapter 5. It looks back at King David, one of the greatest ever of Israel's kings, while looking forward to one like David who would come and rescue people. Mightier than David, with an everlasting reign. And this future king would be born in, you guessed it, Bethlehem. Alarm bells going off. So verse 2 looks at two of Israel's most important leaders, Moses the prophet and David the king. They would point forward to one who would come and rescue. Moses, the word of God, but the promised one would be the word who existed with God in the beginning, who was God. David was a man after God's own heart, a king who pursued God with Uh, and God's glory, but the one coming promised in Micah 5 is from the line of David who would be God's glory personified. In the last line, we read, in a cloud of majesty and awe. The face value meaning of that line, of course, is Mount Sinai and the experience that Moses had with the living God on top of the mountain. But the song's theological imagination, along with the presence of Micah 5, causes us to think of of a coming king, and the reference is maybe to another mountaintop, the mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus is glorified with his disciples. There, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah. They represent the law and the prophets, 
And on this mountain, the voice of God does not say, listen to Moses and to Elijah. He doesn't command Peter and James and John to wait for David or one like him to return. Instead, he highlights Jesus' superiority over the kings, over the law, over the prophets. Yahweh says of Jesus, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus is the one with all wisdom, all authority, all power, all glory. In a world that seems like it's headed towards certain destruction, with leaders who seem more interested in getting reelected than getting things done, in preserving the status quo for a few at the expense of the many, we sing, O come, great Lord of might. The third verse roots Jesus literally in the line of David. O come thou rod or root of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Again, the first setting here is Isaiah, this time Isaiah 11. Four chapters later from that story about Ahaz and Judah and all of that stuff going on, Ahaz has rejected Yahweh's offer of protection from the northern attackers and things have gone horribly wrong. Judgment has come on Judah and Israel because both of these groups, people who were in a covenant with God, had rejected Yahweh and sought protection of idols and idolatrous nations. And they reaped the consequences of their actions. The consequence was God listened to their will. It was described, or they, they didn't want his help, and so he left them to their own devices. And left to fill the void behind, the kingdom of Assyria showed up with a lust for power and a strong army to take it. Israel was scattered. Judah was decimated. It is the certain end to our lives when we reject God's offer of, of help. It's what happens to us. It was described as if Judah were a great tree that had been limbed, chopped down, burnt stump, and left for dead. Final destruction, or so it seemed. Ever the God of life, Yahweh reached out to the smoldering remnant of his people, and he promised to restore them if they would return to him. And he promised that out of the smoldering stump of death would sprout a branch, a rod, a root, the root of Jesse, David's dad, and therefore his savior would come from the line of David. Now for centuries, faithful followers of Yahweh waited for this root of Jesse to come and deliver them from political and religious oppression. But when Jesus came, his followers came to see that, he was, uh, that there was a much bigger rescue plan in play. Writing after Jesus' death and resurrection, John the Apostle receives a vision from Jesus himself. And he's taken in a vision to the throne room of heaven. And there he sees Yahweh exalted on his throne, representing his sovereignty over the universe. And in, in Yahweh's hand is this scroll, representing life for those who are in Christ, life beyond death, freedom from tyranny and oppression and the evil one. And there's a problem in this scene. And the, scene, the problem in the scene is that no one is found who's worthy to unlock this scroll. 
And so John the apostle is in this vision and he starts to cry. He's like, I don't know what, this is, this is horrible. Like there's a scroll offering salvation and, and freedom from oppression and no one is worthy to open it. And one of the elders, I'm just imagining the scene, like, don't cry. There's a worthy one. There's a worthy one. Look, he says, behold, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, the root of David, son of Jesse, Isaiah 11, has overcome so as, op- as to open the book and the seven seals. The Savior is none other than Jesus, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. He gave himself for us that we might be free from the ultimate consequence of our sin, which is, of course, death, eternal death, destruction. Do we long for rescue in a broken land, in a broken world with broken systems? Do we long for the Lion of Judah to open the scroll and rescue us from Satan's tyranny? Absolutely. And so we sing, O come, root of Jesse, come deliver us. The calling out for the root of Jesse leads us naturally into the fourth verse. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. I never quite understood that one. It doesn't quite rhyme in the last line like the other ones, but whatever. Maybe they just gave up. And... Like the previous verse, the reference to key of David is found by looking backward to Isaiah and forward to Revelation. You see there's a little bit of a marriage between those two books. In Isaiah 22, the nation of Israel, once again, this is a repetitive theme, has gone sideways of God. A particular note is that their leadership was corrupt. They were not caring for the poor. They were not upholding justice in the marketplace or in the courts. They were allowing the powerful and the wealthy to maintain their positions at the expense of widows, the fatherless, the poor, and the foreigner. Now, this is from nearly 3,000 years ago, people, not, this isn't like no local news headlines, although you could, you could say that it is. And I, I think that tells us something. That tells us that this form of sin, the sin of injustice, isn't just a contemporary problem. It is a human problem. You look to each generation, to each brand of political leaders throughout all of human history, and you're going to find injustice and abuse and suffering. And this scripture tells us, with the rest of scripture, that God stands firmly against oppression and injustice. He just does. If we think we can get away with it, we just can't. He speaks through the prophet Isaiah to warn the people, and he zeroes in on one guy to kind of make a point, like like how Hannah and Samuel are these two, they, they personify this way bigger problem in Israel. He focuses in on one guy named Shebna. And Shebna was the head steward of the king. And that means, here's what, here's what the steward could do. He had every authority to change interest rates, to set the price of grain and cattle, to distribute wealth, to offer financial aid to people, to offer access to health care, and he could grant people access to the king. The steward could grant people access to the king so that they could have audience with him and, and air their complaints and express their needs. 
Shebna was abusing his power by closing that door to people, by ignoring their needs. And you know what this guy did is he actually was in the twilight of his career and he decided to funnel national resources to make himself a massive monument to himself, to his own name, to his family. So God removed him from power. And he put another man, a man named Eliakim, in his position. But there's more than, uh, more than meets the eye to this Eliakim figure. Isaiah began to speak of him in terms that exceeded those given to any human being. He spoke of another who would have an everlasting reign, one who would lead and do justice and righteousness, one who would be given the key to the house of David. That means the authority of the king. So Eliakim the, takes the king, he's given the king from Shebna, and Eliakim becomes the steward. He's got the key to the house of David. That means he has the authority to mete out the king's resources. But this other figure that Isaiah begins to talk about is said to have the key of the house of David, and he would have the authority to bring people into the presence of God. His reign would be everlasting. Fast forward to the Apostle John again. Imprisoned on the island of Patmos, he has this vision of the risen and reigning Jesus. In John's world, the oppressive Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. They were running their whole economy on a market of slavery. They were keeping people in check through a complex system of racism, nationalism, and unequal distribution of wealth and resources. It's the human condition. It doesn't seem to change. And in this vision, Jesus is revealed as the key of David. He is the one who unlocks the door, and now the door is opened through Jesus. The door to the heavenly realm, the door to access to God. Don't take for granted that we can just talk to God. We just prayed over Eliana, that he would hear and answer her prayer. I believe that that's true. It's because of this one who unlocks the door, because he's got the key of David, amen? Wake up now. This is good stuff. In a world that feels like a world of closed doors, anyone feel like it's a world of closed doors? Of dead ends, of disappointments, of inevitable death and taxes kind of outlook on things? Right in the middle of that world, we gather on cold December nights in the season of Advent, and we sing, oh come, key of David. Come Jesus, the one who opens the door of rescue to the kingdom of God, our true home. Come, key of David. Come, Jesus, the one who closes the path of misery and destruction. Come, and until you come, fill us with hope that the Jesus we experience in the Gospels and in our lives is the same Jesus who holds the key of David, the key of life. Who knew this song during Advent was so powerful, right? We still got two verses to go, so stick with me. <laughs> oh, come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine Advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Dayspring is just a poetic way of saying the shining of the dawn or the rising of the sun. It doesn't take an ounce of biblical knowledge to imagine that scene. One of my favorite camping spots recently over at Perigen Lake, um, you know, that lake is kind of in a valley if you've been there. It could be 100 degrees the, the, in the daytime, but in the morning it's still in the high 40s. It's sweatshirt-worthy weather in the morning. I like to get up before everyone in my tent and get my coffee and my Bible, and I just I sit in the quiet. And one of my favorite things is to wait for the sun to crest over those hills 
uh, these massive rock hills. And as soon as the sun crests over the top, light shines, literally dispels the darkness and speed of light, of course, and, and these lengthening shadows all of a sudden wash out, and the warmth of those rays warm my skin. It doesn't take long, and the sweatshirt comes off, and it feels alive, like the morning wakes up because the day spring has sprung. This is such a common image in poetry and history, and it's fitting here. It's also biblical imagery, and we see a promised Savior described by the prophet Malachi. In this prophecy, we see the familiar trope of Israel having gone astray, finding themselves in darkness. But then there's hope. And it says, For those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. We're not very agrarian people. Well, you guys have a farm now, Jim. But uh, skipping calves is a, an ancient way of saying really happy fun skippy calves. Okay. Uh, that, that's from the last chapter of Malachi. The last prophetic utterance of scripture written down in the Hebrew Bible. And for nearly 400 years after that was written, people would be waiting for the sun to rise on them with healing in its wings, for God to break in. But in the fullness of time, when the world was just as dark and yet open like never before, God began to move among a family in Palestine. Zechariah and Elizabeth were miraculously expecting their first son, or their first child, a son in their old age. And this child was to be a powerful prophet from God who would prepare the way for the Savior. Zechariah spoke of him, actually sung about him in this beautiful song in Luke chapter 1, uh, known now as the Benedictus. And right near the end of Zechariah's song, the subject changes from his son, who would be John the Baptist, to this other kid who John the Baptist would prepare the way for, for Jesus the Christ. And in Luke 1, 78 through 79, it says that this promised one would be the sunrise from on high who will visit us and shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. So Jesus is the dayspring and the song that we call for his advent, his arrival. And we sing that he would bring joy and cheer to us in our world, to rise like the sun and to dispel the clouds of confusion and darkness and evil. Come, Thou dayspring, come. Finally, we get to the sixth verse, a verse that seems ever so timely in our current social uh, climate of division. And it's not just our country I'm talking about, but it's between nations, and it's between religions, and it's between cultures and ideologies. O come, desire of nations, bind all people in one heart and mind. Bid now our sad division cease. And be thyself our king of peace. For yet a third time, a verse in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is rooted both in Isaiah and in Revelation. Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21 to be specific. In both passages, there's a looking forward to a time when the nations would be drawn to, around the living God. When people of different cultures and different languages and different skin colors, different economic systems, 
would all come together under the common banner of the living God as he's revealed in Jesus. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. This is no least common denominator unity. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We won't get in each other's way. That doesn't work. There's too many people to do that. We all get in each other's way. This is a vision of true shalom, where people come together in the kingdom of God. Their differences aren't washed away. I need you to hear that. I don't know what you think of when you think of uh, the kingdom of God, and you've heard that all the nat- nations will be there, and you've heard that all, you know, all the ethnicities and cultures will be there. Do we think then that we'll become something new? I don't see that represented in scripture. It's not a melting pot vision. I wonder, if anything, if the differences aren't highlighted. Each one bringing a creative angle, a piece to contribute to the puzzle that we just didn't know we needed before we had it. Each creation is freed to, each creature is freed to be a sub-creator for the glory of the creator and the father of us all. That is a beautiful image. And that's going to take a heart change, isn't it? We don't all like change. But I think that that's part of the promise of the new creation. As we become the type of people in Christ who can see past our fears and our walls and our divisions and embrace the beauty of God's people. In our sad state of division, fear, and tribalism, may we sing with the hope and longing. And let's say this together as a closing prayer. O come, desire of nations, all peoples in one heart and mind, bid now our sad division cease and be thyself our King of peace. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. We are desperate for you to break into this world. We're thankful for this season of Advent that highlights the theme of longing and the highlights that all of these places in Scripture that just this one song is pointing to, how good you are, how many breadcrumbs you've, you've left us throughout Scripture and history to remind us that there is true hope in you, Lord Jesus. Amen.